Happy New Year, friends, and welcome to Sunday morning at First Presbyterian Church. My name is Danny. And I'm Connie. The author of Hebrews writes that our hope in Jesus Christ is a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. So come and join us and let us celebrate this journey with Christ. Come on in. First lesson today comes from 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, verses three through six. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In our second reading today, we are reading from the Gospel of Mark, where we have been the last several weeks. We have been contained mostly in chapter one, where an amazing amount of things have happened. And now we are jumping square to the middle um, in Mark's Gospel around chapter nine. Well, we are in chapter nine, verses two through nine. This is the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Listen, Mark nine, two through nine. Listen again with fresh ears. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus." Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Well, friends, happy Valentine's Day. It is a day that we celebrate love, various forms of love. But don't worry, you're not too late. You still have after worship to pretend like you had something all along and stop on the way home if you hadn't forgotten. There are several ways to know if you have forgotten. Number one, Hallmark might contact you directly and tell you about a sale on I'm sorry cards or sorry I forgot cards. 
Number two, you could take out the trash, and when you come in, the kids could, the kids could say, Mom went into the room, went to bed, locked the door. Or three, you could wake up tomorrow morning with an advertisement from a florist taped to your forehead. Hmm, little indicators that you might have forgotten. But St. Valentine's Day, what's that all about? Well, we think some uh, um, ambiguous starts for Valentine's Day. We think there were priests, one, maybe two, um, whose name was Valentine, later became sainted to St. Valentine. A few of the lore stories would be that uh, St. Valentine had sent a message to a jailer's daughter, uh, a note of love and support that said, from your Valentine. Hmm. Some stories say that he healed her of uh, her sight because she was blind. Um, another says that St. Uh, Valentine, that became St. Valentine, um, married uh, Roman soldiers in secret because the emperor had uh, forbidden that, uh, forbidden them from getting married, and he uh, still in secret provided these uh, marriages um, in open, well, in defiance of the emperor's edict. So either way, um, we think that's where St. Valentine came from. Chaucer, English poet from the 1300s, wrote a poem about birds who all go to find their matches or their mates in one open place, so many that the sound fills them. You can scarcely see or hear with all the birds who have gone to find their loving partner. Uh, where we, one of the origins of lovebirds comes from that poem, and that directly connected the idea of love with Valentine's Day. Other thoughts and ideas, but today we celebrate love in an even bigger and more important context. We look at love through the lens of the transfiguration. Now, where we are in Mark's gospel is almost dead center. Our passage begins with, and six days later, later from what? Well, in chapter eight, the prior chapter, several big things had happened. They fed the 4,000. Later, they would feed the five, but here it was 4,000. Peter had proclaimed in response to Jesus's question, who do you say that I am? He said, you are the Messiah. Yes. And then, a few verses later, when Jesus starts to talk about how he must suffer and die, Peter says, oh no, we won't let that happen, don't you worry. And Jesus says what? Get thee behind me, Satan. Don't be an adversary. That word Satan in that context means adversary. Don't be in my way. You're a hindrance to God's plan. Get behind me, get out of my way. And so a few days later in response, now the disciples, one of the last things they were grappling with was, what, what do you mean you're the Messiah and you're going to have to suffer and die? That's not what we understand the Messiah to be. Messiah would come with great power and glory and wipe out all of those who have occupied Israel, Jerusalem, all opposing forces, military, strong, what do, you, what do you mean you're going to suffer and die? If Jesus had called them as we studied, uh, as we worshiped and celebrated a few weeks ago, from cast down your nets, follow me. I will make you fishers of all 
If he had said, and I'm the Messiah and I will suffer and die, would they have joined him? I don't know. But here they're trying to figure that, well, what? What did he say? For a week, almost a full week, six days. So here we get to our passage. Six days later, they go up the mountain. Which mountain is this? Not real sure, doesn't specify. Could be Mount Tabor. Uh, that kind of stands alone in that region near Galilee. Others have made the argument for Mount Hermon. But whatever it is, Jesus takes James and John and Peter. I don't know where Andrew is, but Peter, James and John, three of those disciples, and they go up. I don't know what they were going up to do. Jesus may have said, let's, let's go up to pray. Obviously, mountaintops were seen as places where interactions with God was more possible and more regular. Those mountaintop experiences, as we call them. So while they're up there, all of a sudden, this light comes and Jesus changes to something else through this dazzling light. Metamorpho is the Greek word to change form. To change form. Sounds like some kind of alien being, not Jesus. We, we get the word metamorphosis from that, that original word. He changed in that moment somehow through that light. And it was then that they were terrified. And they saw Moses and Elijah. What's significant about that? Well, they had been dead for several hundred years, so that was the first thing. And Moses, as we know, we know almost more about Moses than we do most people in the Bible. But for these purposes, Moses is seen as the one who brought the law, brought the Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai, Mount, Mount Horeb. He was the bringer of that first law that became the Torah and the tablets. And Elijah, what does he represent? Well, we know Elijah as being the one who took on those prophets of Baal in First and Second Kings. If you remember, there was a there was an altar, and Elijah said, okay, let's have a contest. I share this often, but when I was in college in a Christian class, we had a rabbi who came on Super Bowl Sunday, the closest um, school day to that, and said, this was the Super Bowl of the gods. Elijah said, let's put your God against my God. Let's get an altar. You put on it whatever you want. And then we'll let your God see if your God can spark it up from nothing. So they do that, 400 of them dancing around, this pagan prophet of Baal, B-A-A-L, nothing. And Elijah talks some trash to him. He says, well, maybe your God stepped out. Maybe your God did some other things that he insinuated that weren't very nice. And then Elijah says, pour some water on it to make it that much harder to light the wood on this altar. Okay, you poured some water. Good, pour some more water on it. Now it's just surrounded in this soupy mess. How can anything be lit? And he prays to God to send down the fire and God does, lights up and Elijah wins. 
No Tom Brady even. He did it without Tom Brady, won the Super Bowl of the gods. And then slaughters all those 400 prophets. Jezebel, that godless Jezebel, gets mad because Elijah destroyed all her prophets, goes after him, Elijah takes off. Several other stories we know about Elijah, the least of which are not, that we know how did Elijah end his life. Yeah, taken up in a chariot of fire. Chariot of fire. Didn't really die per se. God took him up and then his protege, Elisha, took over, took his mantle and became the prophet. So he represents the prophets. So we have Moses who represents the law, Elisha, Elijah, who represents the prophets. And they are there with Jesus having a conversation. What are they talking about? Does one of them have a bowl of dip and they have some carrots and celery and they're saying, did you see that FSU basketball game going to overtime last night? And they, no. There was one topic of conversation as we see it. They were preparing Christ for what was getting ready to happen. As we begin this Lenten journey that Christ started the day he was born, they are reassuring him as those who have been there, as those who have been persecuted, as those who have had those turn away from him, and those who were preparing him for what he must undergo on the cross and then resurrection. God sent these reinforcements to Jesus right before, again, this journey starts. Not unlike the triumphal entry that we celebrate on Palm Sunday, before Jesus then starts to go into Jerusalem for the last time, there is a moment where people are celebrating him. And here, before he even gets that far, God reinforces through Moses and Elijah that he is fulfilling the law and the prophets and what he must do and get ready to explore. So that, that's full right there. But wait, there's more. Then, then a cloud descends and God's voice can be heard. This is my son, listen to him. Why? Because they had just spent the prior week saying, he said, what? That doesn't make sense. What, how does, I don't understand, I don't get it. Why did he, how did I, what? Listen to him. This is my son. Confirming what Peter had said that Jesus is the Messiah, confirming what Jesus says about himself and what must happen, listen to him. An impression was made. Those disciples would never forget. Matter of fact, in 2 Peter, later on in our Bible, Peter would write about it, 2 Peter 1.16, and say that we were there with him when we heard the voice from heaven on that sacred mountain. Is that something you think you could forget? I don't. Certainly they couldn't either. They had fallen to their knees, as Matthew told us, in fear. They were terrified. It's poor disciples. They are terrified all the time because they keep seeing things, miraculous things. 
Whether it's Jesus walking on the water and they say, it's a ghost, we are terrified. And Jesus says, no, it's just me, relax. Or after the resurrection, they say, oh, it's a ghost. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's me. I told you I was coming back, relax. Here they're terrified again and they hit the dirt, go face down. And then Peter, being Peter, a good extrovert like me and many of us extroverts, talks until he has something to say. He doesn't know what to do, how to respond to this. So he says, oh, let's build three booths up here. How about some tents? One for you, Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But they can't stay, they go down. At some point they get up and Jesus says, shh, don't tell anyone until I have been resurrected. This is a part of the understanding of Mark's gospel in general. There is a messianic secret in Mark. Shh, not ready yet. We can't let that word out. There's too much more for us to do for us to be mobbed and barriers placed in our way to continue our ministry from here till I get to Jerusalem for that last time. So shh, can't tell anybody. That is a hard secret. And that's, friends, where it ends. They see Jesus, they see Moses, they see Elijah, they hear God's voice, they see God in a cloud, dazzling white as Christ is transformed, almost a little Easter before we get to our eventual resurrection. Christ becomes something new, something different, a fulfillment of all the law and prophets as we would say he is after he raises again. Mark is making clear here that there's even a little bit of Easter before we get there. So what does that mean for us? Well, last week we talked about the opportunity to respond to Christ by seeing God in our life. It's, it's hard to respond to something you don't think is there or have never felt a connection with. Of course it is. This is a quite literal mountaintop experience. These disciples could not deny what they saw, what they heard, what they felt. All their senses are tingling. They were terrified. They were scared. It was a creepy environment. Last week in Columbus, Georgia, the fog, night and day, took the dog out at 9, 10 o'clock, 11, whenever it was, and it looks like the scene of a horror movie. You can't quite see things. It's dark. The light and the shadows are all playing games, and you're looking around for some masked maniac with a chainsaw to come after you. Being in the middle of a cloud, I would think would be creepy. And scary, and so it was. And they fell to their knees. There's a story about a mountain climber. He's a beginner and goes with experienced mountain climbers on a high mountain. Not the ones that I might normally climb, but this is a significant mountain adventure. Several days in, they help the newbie get together and get his stuff and make sure his feet are in the right place, his equipment, everything is there. They finally get to the plateau, the summit. They're all there. He comes last. He comes up. He stands up and says, I did it, and was just about blown off the top of the mountain, to which the others are just shaking their head, and they say, you have to know that when you get to the top of the mountain, you have to go down on your knees to avoid being blown off by the wind. 
They went on their knees because they were terrified. They were in the presence of God and prophets. All of these things converged in that one moment. Were Peter, James, and John different after that? I bet they were. The love of God transfigures. The love of God transfigures. Christ is there, changed himself so that we too could be changed when we experience, seek, and allow God's love to transform us or transfigure us. It's hard. The, the world doesn't want to hear about your God is love. 1 John 4, God is love, says that. We've made it soupy and sappy, and it has lost its power and its transformative pros, uh, uh, prospects and pieces. Love of God isn't sweet. It's not happy. It can't be contained in a card or a heart with chocolates. Love is a gift that has been given to each of us in this life. And I know Valentine's Day is harder if you are alone as it might look or seem. Widows, widowers, single people. It's hard because you, get, the, you get, it, get that cultural push. You have to be with somebody to be valid and full. Well, you don't. Because you are loved by God and by our body of Christ church family. You are never alone. That kind of love is deeper and more full. And I will take every day of the week over a romantic love, which also is a gift from God. Absolutely. And for us to be able to live as transfigured people... We need to see the importance of that love. We want in some way to have that same experience as those disciples did. Well, if I was on that mountain and I saw Jesus and I heard God and the cloud came down, the dazzling white and Moses and Elijah, well, maybe then I would give my life, okay. And yet we are told by those who were there that this is the way forward. This is what we have been called to do and the ways in which we are being transfigured and transformed should we allow. It's a gift for us today. All of you are loved in a way that can never be removed or separated. Nothing separates us from the love of Christ as Romans 8, 28 tells us. So today we do celebrate love, the filio, the brotherly, sisterly kind of acquaintance love. Yes, we love humankind. We love one another. Yes, romantic love. Enjoy that healthily and together, not in a self-centered way, but in a way that God has given us as a gift. But that agape love, and I know our confirmands have been studying this also, is that selfless love, that self-sacrificing love that God shows us through Christ. This is our transfigured way forward as individuals, as a community, as a church. So let's seek to place our, ourselves in the presence of God. Let us seek to be on that mountaintop 
Not where we stay. We can't live up there. We know that. The spinners knew it. What goes up must come down. Because this is where the hard work is. We need to have the mountaintop so we can live in the valley and heal in Christ's name and say, no, you be gone. Darkness, dispel. We are bringers of light as we have been transfigured by Christ. So let's let this Valentine's Day be a little different, a little deeper, a little richer, a little more celebrative, a little more serving. For we are called from the mountain to go into the valley and to be the bearers of his miraculous love and light. Let's go. Amen.